And then take your Bibles and open up to the book of Amos. Get to Jeremiah, Ezekiel, a couple of other books in between, and then you'll come to one of the minor prophets, which is the book of Amos. Anybody beat Kyle there? No, he's sleeping. All right, let me begin by just reading the first uh, two verses to you, just to kind of set the introduction um, of the book. And then the aim is to try to cover all the way to down to chapter 2, verse 16, which I've already had one person laugh at me for trying that, but we'll see what happens. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa, which he beheld in the visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, Yahweh roars from Zion, and from Jerusalem he gives forth his voice. And the shepherd's pasture grounds mourn, and the top of caramel dries up. I want to give you a scenario. Imagine that you are a shepherd in ancient Israel fairly young, prime of life, you know, 40 years old. And having grown up in Israel, you are familiar with the culture and the people. Some people are just not getting that joke. I'm, for, I'm 40, and you know, anyways. So you're familiar with the culture, you're familiar with the, the people, you know the politics, you know the good, the bad, and the ugly. This is your home, these are your people. You love your nation. And not only do you love your nation, but also you love the God of your nation, Yahweh. And the fear of the Lord was passed down to you by your father, who was faithful not only to teach you your profession, but also the scriptures. Your profession, as we've already mentioned, is a shepherd. And you've been this for many years, which would have made you familiar with lots of the area in Israel. But you live in Tekoa, and this is a small rural village. For the most part, life is good because you're living in a time of peace and prosperity. And this peace and prosperity has benefited you because business is good. And yet, you find yourself troubled, increasingly troubled, because you are aware that your nation is headed in the wrong direction. At one time, your nation was humbled before the Lord, but with the recent peace and prosperity, you have forgotten Him. There is in some ways still a knowledge of God that remains. There's the traditions and the festivals. Those things haven't changed, but that knowledge of God hasn't taken root in the heart. It hasn't created a brokenness to obey God, and so they do not fear God. They do not actually know Him. And this lack of fear has led into all kinds of gross sin, and yet, they don't see it. They don't see it as a real issue. They still see themselves as God's people, as privileged, and in some ways, they are. Now, you could just go about your business, because again, as I mentioned, business is good. Life is good. It's comfortable. Maybe there's a few potential issues, but those are going to be further down the line. Maybe the sins of the nation will affect your kids, but not necessarily you. 
and yet you keep having these visions and these dreams unmistakably from the Lord, which make it clear that you have a responsibility to speak up and to say something. And the weight of that is on you. And so here's the question. How do you get your nation to see this? You're just a shepherd from Tekoa. What do you say? What is your strategy? How do you, little you, speak judgment to the king of the nation? Not only to your nation in Judah, but also your brother Israel. The nation that is prospering, there's peace, life is good. How do you speak into that? And this was the situation for Amos. And in some ways, there must have been a major tension. Who am I to say it? How exactly am I to say it? Now, I begin here because I want you to get some sense of what he was facing and what it would have taken for him to have actually spoken up. But also to say this, in many ways, we find ourselves in a very similar situation uh, because we at least have a nation that at one time perhaps had more of an idea of who God was. Um, and clearly, as of now, we are headed in the wrong direction. For whatever reason, God has chosen us, you, uh, to make you aware of the truth, to open your eyes. And there is some responsibility <clears throat> that we have for our nation. Um, when Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, was touched with the hot coals, he was suddenly not only aware of his sin, but also the sin that he was responsible for as being a part of his nation. So the same question comes to us. How do we get people to see this? As we have interactions with co-workers and friends, how do we get people to understand who the true God is and what it means for them that there is judgment coming? And I think Amos helps us in many ways here because his strategy is both loving and shrewd. It's very, very wise. And what I want to do is show you his strategy, but not yet. We'll get to that towards the end of our passage. So we're going to begin with the passage. I've got three headings to take us through it. The title of the message is Hard Truths for Hardened Hearts. And the three headings are the soft-hearted shepherd, the hard-hearted neighbors, and the hard-hearted family. So we begin with the soft-hearted shepherd in Amos 1, 1 through 2. I've already read this for you, but essentially what this does is it introduces to us the prophet, who he was, where he lived, tells us something about the times that he lived in, and it reveals something of the nature of his message. So we begin with the words of Amos. The book really gives us little information about who he was, uh, his name derives from the Hebrew verb meaning to load or to carry a load or burden. And so many have suggested that perhaps uh, the idea here is that Amos had a load to bear, a burden as he delivered God's message. One scholar has suggested that maybe his name kind of had the opposite effect. The recipients who received the message uh, felt that Amos was a burden or a pain. And so he, when he comes and he's delivering his message, you know, something to the effect of, well, here comes that pain kind of thing. And another possible meaning of Amos is um, one sustained by Yahweh. 
Um, and certainly, God did sustain Amos as he faced opposition in his ministry. At the end of the day, it's impossible to know, but I think each of those suggestions gives us a little bit of sense of who Amos was and what he was up against. He goes on to tell us that he was among the sheep herders from Tekoa. Among the sheep herders. So this regards what he did. Um, Tekoa was a small village in Judah. Judah's in the south, and it's about 10 miles from Jerusalem, 5 miles from Bethlehem, 18 miles from the Dead Sea. Everything in Israel is pretty close. And so when you look at the news and you're seeing everything going on, in Israel and surrounding Israel, you just got to realize it doesn't take very long to drive to those places at all. And the rockets aren't having to shoot very uh, far. And so these places were within walking distance. So even though he lived in a more rural area, he certainly would have been familiar with Jerusalem um, and the city kind of life as well. He apparently had two occupations. First, he was a sheep herder, which the text right here tells us. Um, Possibly, this verb can also be translated as sheep breeder. And the idea here is that he probably would have been someone who was over a bunch of shepherds uh, and had a business in this kind of industry. Uh, and so this may be what is going on here. And actually, it's well documented that that was an occupation of his day. Uh, and so he was a shepherd, which means he is in a very privileged category in the Old Testament because he's a shepherd and also he's called to be a prophet. Abel was a shepherd and a prophet. Abraham was a shepherd and a prophet. Moses was a shepherd and a prophet. And David was a shepherd and a prophet. And of course, Jesus is the great shepherd. And so even though he had no official training, he was in a very privileged uh, profession to be able to speak God's word. In addition to herding sheep, we also know from Amos 7.14, if you want to look there real quick, it gives us another just little biographical note that Amos was also a grower of sycamore figs. And then Amos answered to Amaziah, I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, for I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. So whatever the specific nature of work that he had. Amos obviously labored in very commonplace occupations for his day. And I think the point of what we're getting here and what Amos is saying is, I'm nothing special. I, I don't bring any letters behind my name, is essentially what he's saying here. And so one moment, Amos is minding his own business, and in the next, he's being called by God, by Yahweh, from his home in Judah to Samaria to go and deliver God's word around the nation in both Judah and Israel. Israel was divided at that time between the north and the south, uh, Israel and Judah. So Amos, right from the beginning, is an illustration of the biblical principle that spiritual gifts and attitude, particularly an attitude of humility, is far more important than academic training or some kind of privileged birth of some kind. And this background should remind us that God calls all kinds of people into service, and it really doesn't matter what you have done. He's going to use who He's going to use. He's just looking for people who will be used. That's the key. And Amos was one of those men. 
And so the soft-hearted shepherd, the reason I titled it that, is because obviously he had a soft heart to God's call because regardless of having any credentials, he went and gave a hard message anyway. I'm sure he didn't want to do it. It would have been nice to not to have had to have done it, and yet he did it because he had a soft heart to what God was calling him to do. Isaiah 66, 2, For my hand made all of these things, thus all these things came into being, declares Yahweh. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. Amos received the word of God, the visions. He trembled, which means he decided I had better obey. I had better go and give this word. So in some ways, he wasn't in a good place to go deliver the message. He had no training. But in other ways, he was in the perfect place because not having any training, he would have had to have been completely dependent upon God. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, 5, Paul said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So that must have been the conviction. I'm not relying on anything I got. I'm relying on God. And so Amos trusted the Lord. He chose to humble himself in obedience. 1 Corinthians 1, 26, Consider your calling, brothers. There are not many of you wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world, the shepherds, to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame that which is strong. Why? Verse 31, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So this is Amos. Briefly consider the times. It says in verse 1, he beheld the visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Joash, two years before the earthquake. You're reading this and you get a sense that like this is real history. And this really happened at a specific moment in history. Uh, and that's because the Bible is true. From this, we can determine that Amos lived and ministered around the year 750 B.C., 750 years before Christ. Um, and he was a contemporary of Hosea, Jonah, and Isaiah, um, also prophets. We can also determine that Amos delivered this message during these two kings' reigns, the king of Israel and the king of Judah. Both of these kings reigned for four centuries, which means that it was a relatively good time of peace. Uh, there wasn't any political turmoil. And so again, the times that he lived in were good times. And then the last clue, he says two years before the earthquake. So there was an earthquake, and right two years before that, he delivered this message. And actually, archaeologists have discovered that there was two major earthquakes in that part of the world uh, during that specific time frame. Again, because the Bible is true. And then we have his message. So if you consider the man, now his message, at least in an introductory fashion. Amos 1-2, he says... Yahweh roars from Zion, and from Jerusalem he gives forth his voice, and the shepherd's pastor's grounds mourn, and the tarp of Carmel dries up. Two things. He has a message of authority. This is from God. The Lord says this. And a message of judgment. Yahweh roars. 
Now, he was a shepherd. He knew what a lion was. And a lion wasn't like a mountain lion that you see here. This is an Asiatic lion, a hunting lion, a hungry lion, one that would kill his prey. And so when they would have pictured a lion, what they would have pictured was a full-blown lion, uh, which could grow up to three and a half to four feet tall, six and a half, seven feet long, not including his tail, can weigh up to 400 pounds. And so this is the kind of thing you don't want to see ever uh, without any kind of gun. Um, but Amos more than likely had, and he didn't have a gun, and he survived. So this is a man's man, Amos is. All right? And so he says that Yahweh roars, which is to say this is a warning shot. Judgment is coming. Yahweh is roaring. He has a message of judgment. And so in some ways, this is kind of like what's going on now. Israel is giving warning shots, and they're saying, get out of the way. There's a bomb about to drop, and soon it will. And that's what he's saying. God is roaring, and he has a message. He's angry. Uh, he is a predator. He's walking around, and he will devour. And this is the message that he has. So that's the soft-hearted shepherd. Now he gets into the heart of his message, and he's going to get more appointed. The hard-hearted neighbors, Amos 1.3. Now, as we go through this, and... Um, We'll see if we, we get through it all or not. I may just read certain little sections. But one thing you'll notice is that every one of these little sections here begins with a phrase. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four. For three transgressions of Tyre and for four. And we need to know what that means. It's a repeated phrase, a rhetorical device, which basically is denoting that these nations have done wrong in innumerable ways. So if the cup is full of God's wrath at three, they poured another fourth transgression, and now it's overflowing. That's the idea. And so God's patience has run out. This phrase is meant to express multiplied sins, atrocities, uh, which are being described, and God will no longer take it. Second, the crimes of the nations here can all be lumped under one heading of really a disrespect of human life. Uh, these are atrocities against humanity. And in that sense, they are all an attack against the image of God. And so God is patient, he's long-suffering, but there is a time when that patience runs out and it's appropriate for his wrath to be poured out. And so that's what we have here. And so if we go through these, you're going to notice there are uh, different nations that are being talked to. So first we have Damascus. And he says in the end of verse 3, because they thresh Gilead with implements of sharp iron, so I will send fire. I will break and consume them. Well, what's he talking about here? And ba basically, this is extreme cruelty and the violation of human rights. Uh, taken metaphorically, one author says, threshing is this. Threshing is what a man does to a thing, a grain crop, in order to extract his own profit from it. And so you have to thresh it to extract the profit. And this is what 
Haziel did in Gilead, he treated people as things. He extracted the profit from the people. And so these people were known at that day for ruthless anger, hatred, and apparently also extreme cruelty towards people. It's interesting that the next one we come to is Gaza. And Gaza, of course, is in the news, and this is the same area that's in the news. And Gaza was the place where the Philistines uh, lived. And so uh, Gaza and, and Israel have been at it for a long time. And actually, all of these people have uh, for a long time. And so you get to Gaza, and the issue is going to be uh, slavery and, again, a violation of human rights. Now he says, for three transgressions and for four, I will not turn back punishment because they took away into exile the whole community of exiles to deliver it up to Edom. And then we have the fire again. Like the Damascans, the Philistines also treated others as objects or things, but with one major difference. While the first treated others as objects with no value, the Philistines treated others as objects to be exploited for their value. Their sin was to capture entire towns and villages for the sole purpose of turning a profit, and they sold their captives into slavery. And so these raids had nothing to do with war. It wasn't an act of revenge or violence. They simply wanted money. They wanted greed. In some ways, this is the same sin that America was guilty of and England was guilty of uh, when the nation was founded. Now, they have not yet given up that sin. They still continue in that sin, and so God is roaring against them, giving a warning shot. Then we come to Tyre, in verses 9 and 10. Thus says Yahweh, for three transgressions and for four, I will not turn back punishment, because they delivered up the whole community of exiles to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Tyre is modern-day Lebanon. So again, all of this is in the news. Lebanon is where Hezbollah is, also trying to fire rockets into Israel right now. Um, essentially, again, we have something very similar, guilty of slave trading and violation of human rights. The difference here is God is saying, not only did you sell people you did not know, you, you sold your friends for profit. Uh, he says brotherhood. And so apparently... Uh, they enjoyed a kind of long-standing covenant of brotherhood, a treaty of sorts. And so their sin was not only a violation of human rights, but also betrayal and not holding up their word. Edom, Amos 1, 11 through 12. I will not turn back its punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword while he corrupted his compassion and his anger also tore continually as he kept his wrath forever. Again, slave trading in spite of brotherhood. And what's he talking about here? This relationship between Israel and Edom actually goes all the way back to Jacob and Esau. That's the brotherhood. Jacob, the descendants, became Israel, and Esau's descendants became Edom. And apparently the Lord expected them to honor that historical relationship. And from God's point of view, they were still brothers. Instead, they stifled the natural affection and compassion. This is why he said he corrupted his compassion and replaced it with a kind of deep-seated hatred, a desire for revenge, maybe. 
And God is angry at this. He kept His wrath forever. Then we come to Ammon, the fifth one. Amos 1.13. Uh, this one is perhaps the worst. For three transgressions of the sons of Ammon and for four, I will not turn back its punishment. And look at this. Because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders. This is ruthless anger. This is the kind of atrocities that perhaps went on a couple weeks ago in Israel. Why? What makes this even worse? This wasn't because they were attacked first. This had nothing to do with an act of revenge. This wasn't in the heat of battle. Essentially what he's saying is that they attacked even the most vulnerable of society, pregnant women, simply for more land. And so as they went to take land, they became enraged with a kind of hot passion in the midst of battle that would have taken place as these people tried to defend themselves, and they committed this awful human atrocity. God saw it, they got away with it for the time, but God saw it, and judgment is coming. Moab, this is the last of the nations, in chapter 2, verse 1, I will not turn back punishment, because he burned the bones of the kings of Edom, of the king of Edom, to lime. What's he saying here? Moab was the product of Lot's incestuous relationship with his older daughter, and the relationship between Israel and Moab had pretty much been one of hostility and conflict for many years. Uh, but what is this thing that God's so concerned with, they, that they burn the king's bones? Well, it would kind of be like this. I mean, in some ways, if someone were to steal our flag and burn it, that means something to us. That's our flag. It represents our nation. Well, in that day and age, the king represented their nation. And so, just imagine, okay, even though we may not all totally agree with President Biden, but were he to get captured while he was just over there and then burned and dragged all over the city, that's a major sin against us, right? And that's something that might enrage us. It's no respect at all for human life is the idea. And so God's judgment roars on this. They saw people of no value. And God saw what they did. And so when you take all this together, this is God's roar of judgment against all the nations. There's obviously over all this the idea that God sees all, and even though justice may not be done in the moment, justice will be done at some moment. And so they were to hear this and be brought to repentance and belief. And of course, as we think about what's going on in Israel, that's our desire for everyone over there. In the same way, God sees everything going on. The desire is that they would come to repentance, that they would believe, that they would wake up to what's going on, because right now, their hatred for one another or their zeal for their religious ideas blinds them to the fact that they're sinning against God. And this is an extremely dangerous place to be. In each case here, the Lord speaks of fire. 
and to describe the judgment that is coming. Uh, captivity, exile, and death are also listed as consequences of their disobedience. So these are the hard-hearted nations. These are the people that did not have God's Word. This is not God's people, so they're not under God in this sense, in that they have God's Word. In some ways, they're not as culpable. But still, they had sinned against creation and conscience. They knew of God's power because they could see creation, and they knew because they were humans that you weren't to treat other humans that way. But they did it anyway. Now, many of these sins were done against Israel, or at least Israel had knowledge of them. And you can imagine as an Israelite, you're listening to this. And here's Amos, this shepherd, and he's speaking passionately about what's going on. And you're agreeing with every word. These nations, these peoples, these groups, these historic enemies of the Israelites, known for their violence and wickedness, how dare they? They deserve God's punishment. Amen. Keep talking. Who, who is this shepherd? Get him up there. Amos for president kind of thing. And yet, what they didn't see coming is that this was all just a rhetorical device that was going to be turned against them. Yes, these nations had committed sins. Yes, these sins were great, and they were deserving of God's judgment. But at least they had not committed this sin while having God's Word. So Amos's plan was simple. First, get Judah and Israel to agree with the condemnation of the nations, and then switch it on them and show them that they're actually worse. It's extremely brilliant. Get them to condemn themselves without knowing they're condemning themselves. And let me give you a little hint. This is exactly what has to happen with anyone who comes to a saving knowledge of Christ. If you see their sin, that's great, but it doesn't do them any good. They have to see their sin. They have to condemn themselves. They have to say, woe is me. So you have to wisely pray that God would allow you to help them see that. And there's many examples of this through Scripture. Probably the most famous would be Nathan with David. How on earth do you get David to see this? Okay, you tell him a cute little children's story, and you get David enraged, and then you say, it's you. Where do you go? There's nowhere to hide. You're right. I've just condemned myself. So that's what... Amos was after. If the pagan nations who had not received the law of God fell under God's judgment on the basis of nothing more than general revelation in their conscience, then how much more so God's chosen nation, since they had received His special revelation, His word, His law, His promises, the prophets? That's the point. It's a well-known biblical principle, 1 Peter 4.17, for it's time for judgment to begin with the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? It's real easy right now in our nation to look outward because you can see it so clear. But revival always begins in God's house. And the reality is, as we look in our own house, there are things that need to change. As we look in our own lives, there are things that need 
to change. And in some ways, our nation got to where it got because God's people stopped speaking the word of God. They stopped speaking up. They stopped caring. They became like the culture around them. In some ways, not looking any different. Judgment begins with the house of God. Luke 12, 47, And the servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating, well, he will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from to him who was entrusted much, the demand will be more. And so we have this as a warning as well, and that was Amos' warning to God's people. And so we transition now, and we go to our last point, the hard-hearted family. The hard-hearted family. They had been cheering, they were the privileged people, but now they realized they had no protection. The roar that they thought was headed in that direction is actually headed in their direction. And they're wondering where to run. You remember Isaiah was a contemporary of Amos, and his words were, the people honor God with their lips, but they removed their hearts far from me. I like that wording of the LSB, they removed their hearts. And so in other words, this was like, in full light and knowledge, they did it knowing that it was wrong. Jesus says the same thing of the Pharisees, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship. This is what Isaiah was saying. God hates hypocrisy. These people are judged for five things. One, they exchange God's law for a lie. In Amos 2, 4 through 5, um, he says, because they rejected the law of Yahweh and not kept his statutes, their falsehood it has led them astray. They walked after their fathers. So instead of holding to God's truth, they rejected the law. They did not keep his statutes. Instead, they followed the lies of their forefathers. That's what he's saying. So first thing they did, they exchanged God's truth for a lie. Second, they extorted their neighbors as well. Um, in verse 6, because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. And, and so that's great. You can see how the nations have mistreated people. You're doing the exact same thing. All you care about is money. Is essentially what he's saying. Three, they engaged in sexual immorality and impure worship. Amos 2.7 the second half, and a man and his father go to the same young woman in order to profane my holy name. On garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Verse 7 most likely speaks of prostitution. Um, a father and a man, this is gross sexual immorality. Same woman. And then we're talking about going to the house of God. So these people are living in sin. At that time, the only kind of sin probably in this way was prostitution. It was more accepted, so that's what they're doing. God sees it all, but then He also sees them walking into God's house with no repentance. And this is not right. They're profaning the house of God, my holy name. Engaged in sexual morality and impure worship. Or they 
exasperated God who had delivered them. There was ingratitude in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. He says, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, though his height was like the height of the cedars, and he was strong as the oaks. I even destroyed their fruit above and the root below. And it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you in the wilderness for 40 years that you might take possession of the Amorite. All this is essentially saying, do you not remember your privileged place is because of me? I delivered you. I put you here. There's absolutely no gratitude. You don't care at all for my word. Fifth, they encourage their spiritual leaders to sin. Uh, this would be essentially the same as they found uh, preachers to tickle their ears. And then they encourage them into further sin. Amos 2, 11 and 12. Then I raised up some of your sons to be prophets, some of your choice men to be Nazarites. Is this not so? But you made the Nazarite drink wine. And you commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. And God was graciously trying to give them someone to turn them back, and yet they just turned them into greater perversion. Exchange the truth of God for a lie. You extorted your neighbor. Instead of loving God and loving neighbor, you loved yourself. You engaged in sexual morality, improper worship. You exasperated God with your ingratitude, and you encouraged your leaders to sin all while having God's Word and still claiming to worship the one true God. These are the sins. These may not be your sins, but it is certainly still a true principle that if there is ongoing sin in your life that you know is sin, and yet you're not taking the steps of repentance, and then you're coming into God's house as if it doesn't matter, it matters. And God sees it. Now the warning. Amos 2.13 Behold, I am weighted down beneath you as a wagon is weighted down when filled with sheaves. So flight will perish from the swift. The strong will not instill his power with courage, nor will the mighty man make his life escape. He who grasps the bow will not stand his ground. The swift of foot will not escape. Nor he who rides the horse makes his life escape. Even the most courageous of heart among the mighty men will flee naked in that day, declares Yahweh. What's he saying? There is no escape. There's no escape. You think you're something? Maybe you're something amongst your fellow brothers. And maybe you're, you've got a great name. You're fast, whatever it may be. You're strong. But before the lion, before Yahweh, you're not getting away. Judgment is coming if you do not repent. Another thing that we learn from all of this, just in closing, not only is judgment inescapable, but also God is not partial. He's not partial. These people were his people, but he doesn't overlook the sin. And so you might say with us, in some way we bear the name of Christ, but he doesn't overlook the sin. We ought to care more about the sin than they in our own life. And perhaps they got there because they saw how gross the sin was around them that they forgot to take the log out of their own eye. They forgot that judgment begins with the house of God. 
They forgot that life comes not just from having the name of being God's people, but actually having the heart of being God's people so that you walk in the truth that He has given. God is not partial, and there is no escape except for the one escape, and we know what that is, that is Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2.3, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? There is no escape. How could they escape if they were to neglect this word that Amos was giving? There is no escape. Escape begins with faith in God's word. And so, at the end of the day, what Amos was bringing was a message, yes, of judgment, but of mercy and grace. Because were they to believe this, God is not only a God of wrath and justice, He's a God full of love, full of mercy. And if you will humble yourself before the Lord and call out to Him, He will save. In closing, I would just say this, in light of everything that's going on in the news, hopefully this helps you know a little better how to pray. Whatever's going on over there, God sees it, He knows it, and our heart should be that everyone comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And sometimes in the heat of battle and the stress and all of that that happens, somebody may wake up and finally be tired of it all and cry out to Christ. And so we want to pray that that would happen. Pray with me as we transition. Father, we thank You, Lord, for the time that we've got to spend in Your Word. Father, these were certainly hard messages to hear, but Lord, they're needed. Lord, a hard message makes for a soft heart. And so, Lord, soften our hearts to Your Word. Lord, cause us not to look at our neighbors. Lord, not to, to look primarily at our nation, but, Father, to begin with our own hearts. Uh, Lord, everyone uh, around us in the church, we desire for um, our own heart to be fully given over to You, for this church to be fully given over to You. And so, Father, we pray that You would search our heart, You would test us, You would know us, and, Lord, You would lead us in the way everlasting. Lord, make us bold like Amos, courageous like Amos, and humble like him. And Father, most of all, make us like Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.